This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Oxygen is really fascinating and it's really special for a variety of reasons. Uh, one of the main reasons we study it is that it's really important for life in the ocean. Without oxygen, there's simply no life in the ocean, just like there's no life on land without oxygen in the atmosphere. Uh, one of the key things to know uh, offhand about the uh, distribution of oxygen in the ocean is that there's way less oxygen in the ocean's interior than there is in the atmosphere. So there's about 37,500 uh, petamol of oxygen in the atmosphere. So about 20% of the atmosphere is filled with oxygen. Whereas there's only about 227 petamol, so there's way less oxygen in the ocean. So that means that uh, marine organisms have to work really hard to get that oxygen. For example, if you're a rabbit or a cat, you need to breathe about 3.6 liters of air to get one gram of oxygen. Whereas if you're a shark or a fish, you need to get about 156 kilogram of water or 150 liter of water through you before you can get the same amount of oxygen. So it's really hard to breathe. It's, uh, uh, it's not as abundant. And um, there are values of oxygen that are detrimental to fish health, and they exist uh, throughout the ocean's interior, in certain parts of uh, the Pacific, for example. And these are called hypoxic conditions. These are values of oxygen that uh, where when they reach about 60 micromole uh, per liter, or less, um, marine organisms start to feel uh, severe physiological changes. It's like humans without air. And that's going to depend on whether you're a crustacean, like a crab or a fish or a bivalve or a gastropod. And you can see here in the plot to the left, to my left, you see that right around 60 micromole per liter is that hypoxic depth uh, below which many organisms begin to feel this hypoxic uh, conditions. So throughout the oceans, marine life is going to avoid this hypoxic condition, uh, and that's going to set up their marine ecosystem habitat. So, so how much of marine organisms uh, can survive below or above? Uh, you can see up here this figure shows uh, in green the, uh, the fraction of species of mollusks, or in orange the fraction of species of fish, or in blue here, the fraction of uh, species of crustaceans that can live below uh, the 60 micromole or the hypoxic boundary that we picked here. And you can see that it's about less than 50 or 40 or 60% of species can live during, uh, in those uh, thresholds. There's other thresholds that uh, oceanographers use, like suboxia, and this is where oxygen gets really close to zero, but not necessarily zero. Now, that threshold... Uh, microbes begin to uh, uh, conduct various uh, biogeochemical reactions that drive various changes in the nutrient cycle. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. And then finally, uh, last terminology that I want to define is uh, anoxia. This is when there's no oxygen, and uh, that's also possible to be found in the ocean's interior. So we've uh, for many of you who are reaching us from San Diego, uh, you've probably remembered the beautiful bioluminescence that uh, came about in late uh, April, in mid-late April, and then started to go away in the first uh, couple of weeks of May. 
And if you live by the ocean, you would smell that stagnant smell of organic matter decomposing. And, uh, and one, one consequence of these red tide is hypoxia. They induce hypoxic events uh, along our coast. And uh, there's a, a really great lecture by Michael Watts from this series that went, goes into the details of what red tides are. Uh, and uh, you can see here in this time series by Clements and Smith that oxygen levels uh, have dropped to nearly anoxic and also very hypoxic uh, conditions. And we've seen some, uh, some fish kills uh, occasionally here along our coast that accompanied uh, these hypoxic events. And that's really why we study oxygen, because oxygen can go down to nearly lethal uh, conditions and without any warning. And that can happen, for example, from coastal hypoxic events, for example, from the red tides, also seen here in uh, San Helena Bay in South Africa, uh, from upwelling-driven events, for example, here uh, off the coast of Goa, India, and also uh, from anthropogenic activities like nitrogen deposition from uh, wastewater treatment plant, for example, shown here uh, from, uh, a power platform, from a treatment plant off the coast of Rhode Island. But what we're going to talk about today is not coastal hypoxia, but we're going to talk about hypoxia in the open ocean. And uh, to show just why we want to understand how oxygen differs, both in the ocean's interior, uh, throughout the open ocean, I've picked this really nice paper uh, by Stroma, Lothar Stroma and colleagues, where they tagged a, uh, some blue marlins and they followed them as they got out of the oxygen minimum zone off the coast of West Africa here. So you can see the white line is the trajectory of the first blue marlin, and it just stays in the upper 100 meters as it's over the low oxygen minimum zone of West Africa. And then as soon as it leaves, it begins to go up and down all the way from the surface down to about 500 meters, and it's able to forage without any restrictions. The other um, blue marlin, which stays in the oxygen minimum zone, stays largely in the upper 100 meters to 200 meters. So it's not able to go below that level of two, which is hypoxic, and it doesn't allow it to metabolize as well. So, so that's really why we study uh, oxygen in the ocean. It's uh, extremely important to marine organisms, and we want to know why does it look the way it does in the ocean, what causes its distribution, and how it's going to change in the future. I think we have to make, again, the distinction between oxygen minimum zones and coastal hypoxia. So oxygen minimum zones are, is what you see here in blue. These are large, open, uh, open ocean, uh, big areas of oxygen minimum that uh, occur naturally, and we'll talk about what's driving them, whereas hypoxic uh, coastal regions uh, are constrained to the, to the coastline, and they're typically either uh, driven by natural phenomena like red tides, but also anthropogenic uh, effects like the delivery of nutrients from uh, wastewater treatment plants or agricultural uh, activities. So it's really important that we separate these two phenomena because they, they get confused a lot in the public's mind. So the first one, coastal hypoxia, or you've probably heard, them, uh, heard of them as dead zones, uh, they uh, result from this process called eutrophication. So uh, say there's an agricultural field or uh, large-scale industrial processes along the coast, for example, off the east coast of the United States, 
and there is a massive rain event, and that uh, rain event dra uh, drags all the nutrients, nitrogen, and all the pollutants out offshore. That fertilizes the upper ocean, and all that fertilized phytoplankton that grows ends up uh, uh, deposed in the ocean's interior along the coast and decomposes, and as it's decomposing, microbial organisms remove oxygen, and we end up with these oxygen dead zones along the coast. The oxygen minimum zones that we find, uh, for example, here off the tropical Pacific, these are related to microbial consumption and production from the open ocean, but they're also um, associated with the large-scale circulation of the ocean. There's a component which we call ventilation, how much water circulation is happening in that region. So, so where, where can we find oxygen in zones? So we can find the biggest ones, for example, off the, uh, the northern tropical Pacific. So that's one of the biggest oxygen minimum zones, and you can see it uh, here with values below 60 millimol per liter cube. Uh, there's also another one south of it. This is the South Tropical Pacific OMZ. Uh, and then in the northern uh, tropical Pacific, there's another one called the North Tropical Pacific OMZ. And then off the coast of India, in the Indian Ocean, the Arabian Sea, uh, there's a very intense oxygen zone that extends pretty far south. And then finally in the Atlantic, there's a couple other oxygen zones, but they're fairly weak. And that's, as we're going to see, because there's a lot of ventilation in the Atlantic. So these oxygen zones are really fascinating. Uh, they have very different character. Each one uh, differs. Uh, so there is, for example, uh, a lot of variability between them just in the depth. So if you go to the tropical Pacific uh, OMZs, you're going to reach hypoxic depth at about 50 to 100 meter depth. So off the coast of Costa Rica, uh, or Mexico, if you were to go offshore, you can find an oxygen minimum zone there just in the upper 100 meters. Whereas the oxygen minimum zones of the Atlantic are going to be uh, deeper, and uh, you're also going to see much deeper oxygen minimum zone in the North northern Pacific. And that reflects, again, this process of ventilation. So, so why... Why are the oxygen minimum zones where they are and what determines their distribution? Uh, the first process is really simple. It's just that warmer water holds less gas. And this graph here shows as temperature increases, oxygen solubility in seawater decreases. And you can actually see this in the upper distribution of oxygen at the surface. So we know that the low latitudes are usually warmer. They receive more sunlight than the high latitudes. And as a result, there's less oxygen at the surface in low latitude versus the high latitudes. So that's the number one process at the, surfer, at the surface that's operating uh, in the mixed layer. Also, there's, uh, there's a lot of exchange between the mixed layer, the upper part of the ocean, and the atmosphere at all times between uh, these uh, two elements. And so whenever there's an undersaturation or less oxygen at the surface, the mixed layer is able to absorb that oxygen right away from the atmosphere. However, uh, if you go down to 200 meter depth, uh, you're going to see a slightly different pattern. You're going to see this pattern where there's low oxygen along the eastern part of the basins here off the Pacific and the Atlantic and the Indian Ocean. And that's not necessarily related to the distribution and temperature. 
So that's where uh, the effects of circulation and biology and chemistry come into play. So in the uh, open ocean, there's uh, what we call the subtropical gyre. Uh, many of you are familiar with subtropical gyre through the Great Pacific, Garbage Patch, for instance. Um, and what you'll notice is that the subtropical Pacific gyre in its anticyclonic flow uh, essentially misses the eastern part of the Pacific. So that's what we call the shadow zones. So there's just not enough ventilation, not enough oxygen that reaches that part of the ocean. Uh, and the other part of this process is biology and chemistry. What you'll notice is that along the equator, there's a lot of upwelling. Uh, there's a lot of biological activity and, uh, and phytoplankton at the surface. That phytoplankton, again, sinks, similar to what we see here with uh, coastal hypoxic events. And as it's sinking, microbes are able to um, respire all that organic matter. So they remove oxygen and uh, they uh, remineralize it into uh, CO2 and nutrients. And so the balance of oxygen is essentially uh, this balance between circulation and biology at depth with some contributions from temperature, but at the surface, it's mostly temperature. So uh, and just to sort of visualize this a little bit more, uh, here's a distribution of oxygen at uh, 150 meter depth. And you can again see the oxygen minimum zones in red. And when I superimposed the, the uh, subtropical, uh, subtropical gyre circulation, you can see that they essentially, the regions where they are not reaching the basin is where you're gonna find these uh, low oxygen minimum zones. If you were to take a, um, a transect right through the Pacific and the Atlantic, you're going to see uh, differences in that ventilation. You will also see differences in how much oxygen reaches the ocean's interior because of what we call the overturning circulation. And that's really important to try to understand differences between the Pacific and the Atlantic, for example. The Pacific has much bigger oxygen minimum zones largely because there's not enough overturning circulation, not enough deep water that forms in the North Pacific and ventilates uh, the ocean's interior. Whereas the Atlantic, there's a lot of oxygen ventilation from North Atlantic deep waters. So this is water that forms here off the coast of uh, Greenland in Canada and descends, and on its descent, it ventilates the rest of the interior. So think of the oxygen minimum zones as your basement at home. Uh, and the high latitude and mid latitudes are the windows to your home. So because the basement is so far away from these windows, uh, they don't get enough circulation and they're going to feel stagnant and the air there is going to feel old. And so the same way uh, that ventilation occurs in your home, it's essentially the same process here in the ocean. There's just not enough ventilation reaching uh, that area. Uh, but there's other processes, for example, the oxygen moon zone of our coast here in the California current uh, region is, uh, is driven in part by upwelling. So uh, during spring, for example, you, uh, you notice that there's more winds coming from the northwest. Uh, and those winds are driven in part by the, uh, the temperature difference between land and ocean. Land just warms uh, much faster than the ocean, that creates a gradient in pressure and it uh, creates winds that go towards the equator. And those winds 
push water, not with them towards the equator, but to 90 degrees to the right. And that's because the Earth rotates. And so as those waters are being pushed offshore, upwelling brings up low oxygen water that comes up to the surface, and it's filled with nutrients, and that's going to fertilize the surface. For example, here, as we can see, uh, low dissolved oxygen, high carbon water that's rich in nutrients comes up to the surface and fertilizes the surface. And then again, as the phytoplankton bloom begins to die and uh, descend into the ocean's interior, microbes begin to respire. And that's really sort of what's driving the existence of the oxygen minimum zones. And we can go uh, more and more about all the, the details of the oxygen minimum zone. I think that's what I find really fascinating uh, about this, these phenomena is that the more you dive in, the more you realize that they're extremely fascinating, extremely complex with all kinds of feedbacks. Uh, and this is one example. Here's uh, some of the processes from the most recent literature that shows uh, the oxygen zone, for example, off the northern uh, eastern tropical Pacific. Uh, it includes contributions from ocean circulation. And within the oxygen zone itself, there's a variety of uh, microbial uh, processes that remove nutrients or recycle nutrients. For example, the process of denitrification, uh, which occurs when oxygen is much lower, uh, and it creates nitrous oxide, which is a byproduct of this reaction and a very powerful greenhouse gas. So these are just examples of some of the chemical and biological processes that are happening in the oxygen mineral zones. Um, and it's important to uh, just sort of take a step back and see how much the ocean has done in terms of mitigating climate change. So because of the buildup of greenhouse gas in the atmosphere, uh, most of the heat trapped by greenhouse gas uh, emissions have gone mostly into the ocean. That's because the ocean is, is large, it's very deep, uh, it's very dynamic, so it, it circulates, so it's able to take that heat and put it in, in its interior. Uh, and very importantly, it's got a large heat capacity. It's able to absorb a lot of heat for very little temperature change. And you can see it here in the uh, panel to the left. You can see the amount of energy that's trapped in different parts of the planetary system. And you can see that the atmosphere, land, and ice only account for a small portion of the energy trapped by uh, the uh, greenhouse gas uh, emissions, whereas most of the heat is trapped by the ocean. And a lot of it has gone into the upper ocean. So this is the upper 1,000 meter. And you can see it in the distribution of ocean heat that's recorded in temperatures over the last uh, six decades, that the North Atlantic, North Pacific, and the Southern Ocean have warmed the most. And that's because, again, they're the windows into the ocean's interior. And as the atmosphere is warming up and most of that heat is going into the ocean, it's going to go into the ocean through this mid and high latitude region of ventilation. So we're going to hear more about this from Professor Sarah Gilley next. I'm really excited to hear uh, about that. What we are interested in is how this warming impacts oxygen. So in the last uh, five or six decades, as the ocean heat content have gone up in the upper 1,000 meter, uh, we've noticed in the observations that the oxygen content globally has decreased. And that's the rate at which it decreased is about 2% of the total oxygen inventory. That might not seem like a lot, 
But 2% is, is a lot for, especially for regions where oxygen is already low. And you can see that in the distribution of the oxygen loss that we've recorded, that a lot of it is in regions, for example, here in the tropical Pacific, where oxygen is already low. So uh, uh, the decline in oxygen in these regions where, where oxygen is already naturally low can have a really big impact on where that hypoxic depth sits. You can also see there's a lot of changes in the Arctic, in the Southern Ocean, and in the South Atlantic. And so when we say 2% decline in total oxygen in the ocean, uh, that's really the global mean. It doesn't say much about the regional uh, changes. And this paper by Professor Lisa Levin really highlights that, where we can see, for example, especially in the North Pacific, that the tropics have uh, account for about 40% of that change, the tropic in the North Pacific. In certain areas like the Southern California Bight, just offshore from here, uh, there's been a 21% decline in oxygen from 1984 to 2006, a depth of about 300 meters. Uh, in Monterey Bay, we've seen uh, declines of about 40%. In Station Papa, which is one of the longest time series recording oxygen, there's been a 20% decline in oxygen. So there's some pretty large changes regionally that are uh, superimposed on sort of a, a smaller decline globally. But there's also a lot of uncertainties in some of these numbers. For example, in the tropics, the observations can be sparse. And so there's still a lot of work going into figuring out how, how robust are some of these trends and how much more observation we can, uh, we can get out of new methods. The main mechanism by which oxygen is being lost because of warming, uh, one, we, uh, we've said earlier that a warmer ocean can hold less gas, and that's the gas solubility component of uh, the equation. That's just thermodynamics, but that only accounts for about 50, 15 to about 50% of the change. A lot of the change is going to happen because of the circulation effects and the biology effects. And this is an illustration. It looks pretty complex with all kinds of arrows. But essentially, if you follow these arrows, these, for example, here are the mid-latitude and the high-latitude, whereby water goes into the ocean's interior. And so as the ocean warms, the upper ocean becomes more stratified, becomes harder to mix waters between these different isopycnals or different layers of same density. And the, the upper ocean becomes more stratified, there's less ventilation into the ocean's interior. So that kind of creates uh, even more time for these microbes to respire oxygen and less oxygen supply to the ocean's interior. So that's one mechanism by which we think that the oxygen immune zones are going to be expanding as uh, the ocean warms. And we can turn to models uh, like climate models to uh, sort of get a general understanding of how the Earth system is going to respond to this warming. To the right is uh, a combination of different models uh, that were submitted to the IPCC report. And the IPCC report is, the, uh, uh, is an intergovernmental panel uh, of experts that provide input from the literature on the latest science. And uh, they use uh, Earth system models to try to infer what's going to happen by the end of 2100. And what these models are showing us is that as the ocean warms, there is going to be less oxygen in the, in the layer that we call the thermocline. So this is the depth of about 200 to 600 meter depth. This is typically where you can find a lot of these oxygen minimum zones. 
they, uh, they show that there's less and less oxygen in the high latitudes, for example, here in the Southern Ocean, in the North Pacific, and in the mid-latitudes, and uh, the North Atlantic. And that's the, the rate of the oxygen decline here, uh, shown for the global oxygen content change in percentage. So by 2100, depending on what scenario you pick, uh, if it's low emission scenario in blue, uh, or a high emission scenario, which is business as usual, we're looking at anywhere from an additional 2% to 4% change in the oceanic oxygen inventory. So the amount of oxygen that might be lost in the future depends on how much greenhouse gas emission we emit in the future. But one interesting thing that I want to put, uh, point your eyes to is this region in the low latitudes. So we'll talk about that in a bit, but the models don't really agree very much on what's going to happen in the low latitudes. And the agreement between the models is shown here in dots. So where there's uh, a lot of agreement between the models, uh, you'll see dots and you'll also see a decrease in oxygen. Whereas in the low latitudes, there is generally low disagreement between the models, and some of them even show that there's going to be an increase in oxygen uh, in these oxygen minimum zones. So the, the picture that the models are giving us is really complex. Um, but models are just models, and so we have to uh, use them with a certain amount of caution. We also have to root our uh, understanding of the Earth system in observation first, but you know, get some information from the models. Then I just want to sort of point out that the oxygen changes that I've shown in these models are just one of many other impacts that we expect from, uh, from a warming planet. We know that the Earth system is going to warm up and the sea surface temperature and the ocean's interior are going to warm. So there's a lot of agreement between models on that warming. Uh, we also know that the additional CO2 in the atmosphere is going to cause more uh, uh, acidification or a decrease in pH, and that's also pretty well understood. A lot of it is driven by carbonate chemistry. That's really well understood. And then finally, uh, we also th uh, think that there's going to be changes in primary productivity. So the amount of nutrients that come up to the surface and the amount of productivity from phytoplankton bloom might change. That's going to depend on circulation and warming and a variety of different processes, but that's even less certain than what's happening with oxygen. But I just want to sort of uh, show that there's way more than just one impact, and oxygen is just one of them, but it's also one of the most uh, important ones. Uh, and we have to study it sort of in concert with these other impacts. And uh, for, as, as, a, as a scientist, I'm really fascinated in this topic from a scientific standpoint, but I'm also concerned about its impact on marine ecosystems. Uh, marine ecosystems are really complex, and especially uh, the interaction between uh, different communities in, uh, vertically and also laterally. And so as the ocean warms, uh, not only is the oxygen uh, supply or the oxygen in the ocean's uh, water is going to decrease, uh, the oxygen demand from fish is also going to increase because it's warmer. And as these OMZs are expanding, um, the, these marine ecosystems are going to get squashed further up. So that uh, the, the hypoxic depth, as it shoals, is going to create less space for these different marine ecosystems to coexist. So that means that preys are going to become more vulnerable to predators. Uh, fish, as a general, is going to be more vulnerable to fisheries. 
A lot of this is uh, is a lot of uh, is work in progress, uh, and uh, we're really just starting to understand the impacts of changes in oxygen on not only uh, ecosystem dynamics but also uh, marine organism health, uh, including vision. And we're going to hopefully hear soon uh, within this lecture series on some of the biological impacts of uh, of these oxygen minimum zone expansion. Uh, and here's an example, really uh, a cool example that shows, for example, here off the coast, as the oxygen minimum zone, minimum zone shoals, uh, we expect that there's going to be decoupling or changes in decoupling between pelagic organisms, those that live offshore versus those that live on the benthos, on the, uh, on the ocean's floor. So there's a lot of uh, exciting work that's happening that's trying to understand how marine ecosystems are going to um, adapt or react to these changes in, uh, in the ocean's environment. If you want to learn more, uh, there's some great resources. Uh, one is the most recent uh, ocean cryosphere report uh, that's been done by the IPCC. And there, uh, they've assembled a lot of the uh, most recent literature on uh, what's happening in our oceans, including oxygen. It's got a very uh, thorough uh, section on oxygen. And if you want to get into even more detail, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature has uh, published a report recently, uh, and Scripps scientists and uh, scientists from around the world have contributed to sort of summarizing a lot of these uh, scientific problems in this report, and I strongly recommend uh, to look it up online and, uh, and get caught up with the science behind it and also the implications for marine ecosystems um, that we expect from this problem. And oxygen is really tough because it includes a bunch of different processes happening at once. So ocean circulation, chemistry, biology. Uh, and it's also a problem that we don't fully understand yet. The science behind it is still somewhat young. And you can see that, for example, in uh, this discrepancy between what the observations are showing and what the models are showing. I've no, I've. Uh, sort of referred to earlier that the observation are showing a substantial amount of oxygen loss in the tropics, whereas the models uh, mostly show very little changes and even a positive increase in oxygen. So this discrepancy between the models and uh, observations in terms of what oxygen should do uh, has really motivated a lot of new uh, insights into why why is oxygen declining in the tropical Pacific? Um, and one of the, the, the ideas that is also really prominent in the literature is what is the role of natural variability? For example, here to the left, I'm showing uh, sea surface temperatures that are associated with natural variability phenomena we call Pacific decadal oscillations. And it's just an index that we use to describe decades that are typically cold, for example, the 1960s through 1970s and decades that are warm, for example, the 1970s through the 1990s. And uh, these natural modes of variability, like the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, El Nino, uh, that many of you are familiar with, they induce a lot of variability, not only in temperature, but also in the biology and the chemistry of the ocean. So what that does is it really creates a problem in trying to identify what is human-driven what is the change in the oxygen that's driven by human warming? And what's natural? 
And that's something that really fascinates me and many of my colleagues. Uh, but it also makes it really hard to detect the anthropogenic signals in the ocean. And to the right here, I'm showing what we call the time of emergence, which is really the time uh, by which the anthropogenic signal or the anthropogenic impacts on oxygen are going to be detected in measurements. And sometimes we might not be able to find that for another uh, 50 or 100 years, for example, over regions in the tropical Pacific, but in other places, like in the northern tropical Pacific, in the Atlantic or Southern Ocean, uh, this paper here shows that we can expect to see the influence of human warming on oxygen in the next 10 years or even now or even the next 20 or 30 years. So natural variability is really important. It's one of the biggest challenges uh, that we face. Another problem is that the models themselves uh, don't do don't do so well in the tropics. Um, when you look at their projections here for regions that are uh, hypoxic, below, say, 50 millimol per meter cube, the behavior of different models and different colors here show different trajectory for a different model. Some models show that the, the volume of the hypoxic or the oxygen zone is going to increase in certain models, sometimes really uh, increase. And for other models, it shows very little change, if not a decrease in the volume of the oxygen zone or an increase in the oxygen content in that region. So each model is, uh, is going to show a different future in that region, in part because of their biases. And their, the, the model biases here, what I mean by bias is that they're not reproducing uh, the mean state or the processes in that region well. Uh, so... So how does that change, for example, from one generation of model to the next? What I've shown here is models from the last IPCC report. Uh, and so there's been a lot of work over the last seven to 10 years to try to improve how these models represent ocean circulation processes. But the most recent paper, this just came out uh, last week, um, shows that models are still doing pretty poorly in that region, and they're also still disagreeing on what's going to happen in the tropical Pacific. So a big challenge is try to understand what's happening in the tropical Pacific. How can we better model the oxygen zones in that region? And one big challenge there has been computational uh, resources. In order to represent the oxygen zones, we have to get really small-scale circulation features, right? for example, eddies or equatorial currents like the equatorial undercurrents. And we have a really good understanding of global ocean circulation in these climate models, but at regional scales, we're now really starting to understand how these smaller scale features are impacting the oxygen distribution. You could see these beautiful patterns starting to emerge here along the coast of North America, the equatorial undercurrents bringing oxygen to the Eastern Pacific, uh, eddies changing the extent of the oxygen zone. So it's really an interesting time to be a scientist. Um, another really uh, important advantage of using models that it allows us better process understanding of natural variability. We can run a model without any anthropogenic forcing and just try to understand how El Nino is going to impact the oxygen zone, how the Pacific decadal oscillation might impact an oxygen zone, or even how these small eddies for example, this observed eddy, which is like a storm that happens in the ocean that traps low oxygen water and transports it, and it's been observed here in the Cape Verde Ocean Observatory, 
to lead to very low oxygen um, values for almost a month in that region. So models are really critical in trying to help us understand what's happening uh, and, uh, and sort of get a better idea of the natural versus the anthropogenic component. And then finally, the, the, the observations are, have been sparse over the last five or uh, six decades. But there's a, an exciting new program called uh, Biogeochemical Argo Program. And some of you have heard of this as the Argo Program, where a float goes up and down uh, the ocean's interior and records temperature and salinity and delivers it back to us via satellite. Uh, these biogeochemical Argo floats are very similar, except that they, um, they uh, also record oxygen through a little sensor that you see here to the left. And uh, they're gonna be really instrumental in trying to record how the oxygen mineral zones are gonna evolve over the next 10, 20 years. So this is really an exciting new development um, that I, me and many colleagues uh, can't wait to get our hands on the data and try to start to work with it. So uh, to wrap up, I, I think this is uh, an exciting time to be a scientist despite all the challenges of few observations in the past or model limitations. There's now more observations than ever. The models are getting better and better. Uh, and that's going to really help us become more prepared to the potential impacts of climate change and, if, and also natural climate variability as our community uh, becomes more and more um, uh, dependent on ocean resources, and especially in small island nations and uh, and uh, nations around the Pacific, uh, as each country begins to develop their own adaptation plan, they're going to need more observations and better models to try to figure out how these resources uh, are evolving. And uh, feel free to uh, visit our website at climateadapt.ucsd.edu. This is the website for our Center for Climate Change Impacts and Adaptation, where our focus is try to build preparation through more observations, better models to try and understand how sea level rise is going to evolve in the future and how it's evolving right now, how these marine ecosystem habitats, especially oxygen, temperature, and pH are evolving, and also human health here on land and in the ocean. Sure, I want to uh, uh, sort of reference the long history that Scripps has had in studying oxygen uh, over the last uh, 60 or 70 years. For example, the director of scripts uh, back in the 1940s, Harold Sparrowdrop wrote one of the first papers that explained why there's an oxygen minima in the ocean's interior, and why there's a maxima. Um, and he was the first to say that biology and chemistry have a major role to play in shaping oxygen in the ocean's interior. Uh, there was a major other contribution from a researcher back in the 60s at Scripps, Klaus Wurtke, uh, who highlighted the role of ocean circulation, how this sort of weaker horizontal circulation and more vertical circulation controls the oxygen distribution in the upper uh, ocean. And then uh, really, it wasn't until uh, various cruise uh, sections that detailed the, the distribution of oxygen in the ocean's interior by people uh, like Professor Lintali, uh, that we've really got a better understanding of just how complex the, the three-dimensional structure of oxygen is in the ocean. Um, and then later on, as, uh, as more cruises have begun to look at the organisms looking inside of them, for example, uh, uh, 
many of the research done by Professor Lisa Levin has looked at the communities that are living within these oxygen zones and how they adapt to such low uh, oxygen values. And then finally, uh, a major contribution to the field came from uh, Dr. Ralph Keeling, who not only measured oxygen in the atmosphere for the first time, uh, but also uh, has done a lot of work in showing how oxygen minimum zones are going to respond to uh, global warming as the anthropogenic CO2 emissions in the atmosphere keep all building up. So I just wanted to uh, give sort of a, an overview of the incredible role that uh, oceanographers and atmospheric scientists at Scripps have done. Um, and, uh, and I'm really, uh, really honored to also be uh, mentored by many of these people. And uh, the more I learned, the more I realized it's really complex. Um, and also, it's really important. I've begun to learn that we depend uh, so much on our planet for our well-being. And so uh, studying climate and ocean sciences was sort of the perfect way to uh, both be immersed in this element that I really enjoy but also uh, sort of try to understand it so that we better protect it. And as, as a surfer, you know, you're, you're out in the ocean, you sort of notice the changes from day to day, you're more aware of uh, pollution events, for example, after uh, rain uh, runoff events. And so sort of this combination of curiosity about how the ocean works and the climate system works and how the different elements, the ocean, the atmosphere uh, work, and also what we can do to protect them was uh, is pretty unique to climate science and oceanography. So I applied to the best place to do that, and that was Scripps. Um, and, um, and I was really lucky to have uh, incredible mentors, uh, like people I've shown early in that timeline, Professor Lisa Levin and Dr. Ralph Keeling, and many others who sort of helped me develop uh, scientific curiosity, which is really uh, one of the most important drivers of uh, of scientific discovery. It's just trying to figure out how things work and, uh, and finding solutions to problems along the way. Uh, oftentimes, when, you know, when I started my graduate studies, I was on one path and then ended up pursuing very different questions. Uh, and while pursuing these different questions, you find different answers than you expect in the first place. That's been really the common uh, and main thing that I enjoy the most about pursuing um, ocean sciences in general, just the unexpected. The ocean is full of, full of surprises, full of, uh, of new discoveries, and we're really just kind of uh, uh, putting our toes in, so to speak. Uh, there's a lot more that we can learn, and especially a lot more to understand in terms of how it's going to react to, the, uh, to our human footprint in terms of pollution or, or climate change. Uh, and also just how it naturally varies and how that uh, impacts us as a society. Uh, for example, in cores that we drill from uh, cruises that uh, we take out into the open ocean, and we can uh, infer from changes in, for example, marine organism fossils that are stored in those cores at the bottom of the ocean, what different species have lived and also how much oxygen uh, was there back then. And, uh, and one, one uh, period is the end Permian period, some couple hundred million years ago, where oxygen uh, was low and there was a lot of CO2 in the atmosphere from uh, apparently from enhanced volcanic activity. 
And uh, that's one way that we can sort of think about the future, but that's a, a different analogy. It's an analogy that we can use in terms of what happens when you have these major, big, hypoxic events, but the drivers are different. Uh, those occurred over uh, longer periods of time. They had much larger magnitude of warming and oxygen change, but they can still give us an idea about just sort of the, the impact on marine ecosystems and species diversity um, and uh, they're very useful in that regard. So we can use them both as, as uh, a, uh, an analogy in terms of what happens when oxygen drops to very low level, but uh, they're also quite different in terms of the mechanisms that were governing and the magnitude of oxygen change that were happening uh, on those timescales. Uh, anthropogenic changes that we're seeing are of great concern, uh, that, but we can certainly uh, have an impact on our trajectory moving forward. And I think uh, a really big part of having sort of solutions at hand is try to understand the problem more. How much changes have happened because of human versus natural variability? Uh, how severe are these changes? Uh, and how much do we need to adapt to that's irreversible versus how much is needed to mitigate these changes? Uh, and so in terms of uh, optimism, I'm highly optimistic. I've been, uh, I've been interacting in the past with policymakers where I've seen sort of change happen over pretty short periods of time, but also I've seen uh, uh, sort of uh, actions taking us in the wrong direction. Uh, and that's really uh, a, a topic for policymakers uh, to, to do with uh, information and guidance from scientists. Uh, but I don't think it's too late. I think there's a lot that we can do, um, and especially there's a lot that we can learn. Uh, and especially in terms of adaptation and mitigation, there's a tremendous amount that science can really bring to the table uh, in sort of learning to adapt. And You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.